Welcome back, Heming Brainiacs, to the pod, talking about chapter 2.1. I liked the TLDR, even though I I did R it, technically. TLDR, of course. This means um, too long, didn't read. Um, But I did R it, I did read it, but still, I appreciate the summary, the cliff notes, if you will. Um, Swim says the mama fish, he says the cat story, double sad face. Yeah, it was a bit heartbreaking. I just had to kind of power past it and not really think about it, but it was a bit, uh, grim. It's hilarious how A.E. is always looking at his watch and murmuring about work to escape George. I know Manet, Monet, Morisot, and Constable. I viewed their paintings at various museums. Condor, Fisher and Watts are new to me. Charles Edward Condor was an English-born painter, lithographer, and designer, he emigrated to Australia and was a key figure in the Heidelberg School, arguably the beginning of the distinctive Australian tradition in Western art. Oh, cool. George Frederick Watts was a British painter and a sculptor associated with the Symbolist movement. Symbolism was in late 19th century art, movement of French and Belgian origin. In poetry and other arts, seeking to represent absolute truth symbolically through language and metaphorical images, mainly as a reaction against the naturalism and realism, ironic since our George is known as a naturalist writer. William Mark Fisher was born in Boston, Massachusetts in 1841. Fisher was considered one of the finest, sorry, the first artists to bring the Impressionist style to England and was noted by George Moore in 1893 as being England's greatest living landscape painter. Tecrific says, if Moore's verbosity and long-windedness in this memoir is anything to go by, he must have been just as bad IRL. Which, with such friends, who needs enemies? Yeah, he's probably quite a tedious fellow, wasn't he? To talk to, a bit of a know-it-all. A lot of a know-it-all, actually. He seems to be uh, profoundly interested in himself. Keeping reading, let's go. It was sad to lose him, and while walking to the wicket, it seemed to me clear that he was the one who could restore to me my confidence in life, and when he left me, a certain mental sweetness seemed to have gone out of the air, and thinking of him, I began to wonder if it were if he were aware of his own sweetness. It is a as spontaneous and instinctive as in him as a breath of scent from the lilac bushes seemed to finish my sentence for me, and it carried my mind into a little story I had heard from Hughes. He and A.E. were students together in the art school in Dublin, and in a few weeks masters and students were alike amazed at A.E.'s talent for drawing and composition. He sketched the naked model from sight with an ease that was unknown to them, and turning from the model he designed a great assembly of gods about the shores of the lake, renowned for Celtic tradition. Compared with him, we seemed, at that time, no more than miserable scratches and soilers of paper. Hughes's very words, yet in spite of an extraordinary fluency of expression, abundant inspiration, and the belief of the whole school that a great artist was in him, A.E. laid aside his brushes, determined not to pick them up again until he had mastered the besetting temptation that art presented at that moment. He feared it as a sort of self-indulgence, which if yielded to, would stint his life. Art with him is a means rather than an end. It should be sought, for by its help we can live more purely, more intensely, but we must never forget that to live as fully as possible is, after all, our main concern, and he had known this truth, 
ever since he had defied God on the road to Amach. But his life did not take its definite direction until an Indian missionary arrived in Dublin. It seemed odd that it that I should have personal knowledge of this very Brahim. Chance had thrown me in his way. I had met him in West Kensington and had fled before him, but A.E. had gone to him instinctively as to a destiny, and a few months later in Up and Ishads and the Vedas were born again in verse and in prose, the metrical version better than the prose. In the twenties our thoughts ran into verse and A.E.'s flowed into rhyme and metre as easily as into line and colour, but deriving the same pleasure from the writing of verse as he did from painting, he was again assailed by scruples of conscience, and to free himself from the suspicion that he might be still living in time rather than in eternity, he charged his disciples to decide whether he should contribute essays or poems. It is to their wise decision that we owe the two inspired volumes The Earth Breath and Homeward. As the reader follows my tracing of A.E.'s soul at a very difficult point in his life, he must be careful to avoid any inference that A.E. endeavoured to escape from the sensual will because he believed it to be the business of everyone to tear it out of his life and intellect, suckled on the law of the East, does not fall into the error of the parish priest who accepts chastity as a virtue in itself, thinking that if he foregoes the pleasure of Bridget's, he is free to devote himself to that of his own belly. And I smiled, for in my imagination I could see a yogi raising his oriental eyes in contempt at the strange jargon of metaphysics that a burly priest from Cornwall, out of breath from the steep ascent, pours over his bowl of rice. My thoughts melted away, and I dreamed a long while, or a long or a moment, I know not which, on the pure wisdom of the East and our own grossness. But of course, I said, waking up suddenly, we have all to yield something, to, great, to gain a great deal. Were it otherwise, society would come to pieces like a rotten sponge. The right of property holds good in all society, but in the West, ethics invade the personal life in a manner unknown to the East. So much of that, the Oriental stands agape at our folly, knowing well that every man brings himself instincts and ideas into the world with him. The East says to the West, you prat incessantly about monogamy and the fruit of all your labour in a house divided against itself. For man is polygamous, if he say if he is anything, and if our deeds go down on set one set of lines and our ideas go down another, our lives are wasted, and in the end a sudden thought darting across my mind left my sentence unfinished, and I asked myself what manner of man I was. The question had often been asked before, had always remained unanswered, but that day sitting under my apple tree it seemed to me that I had suddenly come upon the secret lair in which the soul hides itself. An extraordinarily clear and inflexible moral sense rose up and confronted me, and looking down my past life, I was astonished to see how dependent my deeds had always been upon my ideas. I had never been able to do anything that I thought wrong, and my conscience had inspired my books. A modern lover is half forgotten, but it seems to me that even in those early days I was interested in the relation of thought and deed. The mamma's wife declines, for she is without sufficient personal conscience to detach herself from the conventions in which she has been brought up. Alice Barton in Muslin is a preparatory study, a provision in Issa Waters. Both represent the personal conscience striving against the communal, and feeling that I had learned to know myself at last, I rose from the seat and looked round, thinking that in A.E. as in myself, thought and action are at one. 
Like I said, the essentials, though to the casual observer, regions apart, but everybody in Dublin thinks that he is like A.E., as everybody in the world thinks he is like a Hamlet. Is like Hamlet, sorry. He comes to see me every day between two and three, riding his old bicycle through the gateway. I run to the wicket to let him in, and he, we walk together to a great apple tree and sit there talking to, of Manet and the immortality of the soul. It is pleasant to remember these weeks, for I was very happy in these first conversations, but the reader knows how impossible it is for me to believe that anyone likes me for my own sake. And at the end of a week, my happiness may have lasted halfway into the second week, and at the end of eight or nine days I was trying to find sufficient reason why A.E. should seek me out in my garden every afternoon, saying and saying vainly that he was attracted by something in me he had been seeking a long while, and thought he had found at last, and this seeming to me a very unsatisfying explanation, I began to cast about in my mind for another, coming to the belief, or very nearly to it, that A.E. recognised me as the spiritual influence that Ireland had been waiting for so long. And the fact that he was the only one in Dublin who had shown no surprise at my coming forfeited me in the belief, and I dreamed on until his voice called me out of my dream of himself and myself, and as if he had been aware all the time that I had been thinking about him, he said, as soon as you had lived as much of your life as was necessary for you to live in Paris and London, you were led back to us, though, through Yeats. No, A.E., not through Yeats. At most, it was an instrument, and it is possible to go further back than him. Martin was before Yeats, but like Yeats, he was no more than an instrument, for neither of them wanted me to come back. You did, and somehow I can't help feeling that you knew I was coming back. You had read my books, and it was my books, perhaps, that made you wish for my return. Wish not as one wishes to smoke a cigarette, but you really did want to have me here. I certainly did wish that England would return to us some of our men of talent, but this wasn't the answer I wanted. What I would like to know, A.E., is did you wish to have me back for my own sake, because you felt that something was lacking in my books, or was it merely for the sake of Ireland? I'm afraid the questions I'm putting to you make me seem very silly and egotistical, yet I don't feel either. Perhaps Ireland needs you a little. I wonder. I suppose Ireland needs a soul. But there is something I have never told you. Something I have never told anybody. A.E. puffed at his pipe in silence and strove against the temptation to confide in him the story of the summons I had received on the road to Chelsea. For his idea of me was not of one that saw visions or heard spirit voices. I felt that to be so, without, however, being able to rid myself of the belief that he had discovered in me the spiritual influence that Ireland was waiting for, how complicated everything is. Nothing will be gained by telling him. I won't tell him. The conversation took a different turn. I felt relieved. The temptation seemed to have passed from me, but a few minutes after my story slipped from my lips as nearly as possible in these words. You know that I came over here to publish an article in the Freeman's Journal about the Boer War. And the article attracted a great deal of attention. A.E. nodded, and I could see that he was listening intently. If it hadn't been for that article, all the Boers would have been murdered, and England would have saved £200 million. Providence has to make a choice of an instrument, and you are chosen today, another tomorrow. That day, I was chosen 
as the instrument, and on the road to Chelsea, thinking of this great and merciful providence, I heard a voice bidding me back to Ireland. It is difficult to know for certain what one hears and what one imagines one has heard. One's thoughts are sometimes very loud, but the voice was from without. I'm sure it was, i.e. Three or four days afterwards I heard the same words spoken within my ear while I was lying in bed asleep, and the voice spoke so distinctly that I threw out my arms to retain the speaker. Nor is this all. Very soon afterwards, in my drawing room in Victoria Street, about eleven o'clock at night, I experienced an extraordinary desire to pray, which I resisted for a long time. The temptation proved stronger than my power to resist it, and I shall never forget how I fell forward and buried my face in the armchair and prayed. What prayer did you say? One can pray without words, surely. When the hooker that was talking, Yeats over to Iran, or taking him back to Galway, was caught in a storm... Yeats fell upon his knees and tried to say a prayer, but the nearest thing that one he could think of was of, of man's first disobedience and the fruit, and he spoke as much as Paradise Lost as he could remember. But A, you either believe or you don't believe what I say. I can quite understand that you're deeply interested in your in the voice in your in the voice you heard, or you think you heard, but our com- concern isn't so much with it as with the fact that you have been brought back to Ireland. A cloud then seemed to come between us, and out of this cloud I heard A.A. seeing, saying that he was, that if he were to tell people that all his drawings were done from sittings given to him by gods, it would be easy for him to sell every stroke he put on canvas, and to pass himself off as a very wonderful person. But your drawings are done from sittings given to you by the gods. I remember your telling me that three stood at the end of your bed looking at you one morning. Three great beings came to my bedside, but I cannot tell you if I saw them directly as I see you, if I see you directly, or whether I saw them reflected as in a mirror. In either case, they came from a spiritual world. A vision was vouchsafed to you. Why not to me? I don't dispute the authenticity of your vision, my dear Moore. Why should I? How could I even wish to dispute it? On what grounds? But you seem to doubt it. No, a vision is the personal concern of the visionary. No more. Who sent the vision? Whose voice did I hear? An angel's? And angels and Jehovah's messengers and apparitions. And this I can say. The gods that inspired your coming were not Asiatic. The gods to whom the English are praying that strength may be given to them to destroy the Boas quickly and at little cost. A poor little nation no bigger than Connaught. The lust for blood was in everybody's face. I had to leave. If the news came in that five hundred bowers were taken prisoners, faces darkened and brightened, if the news were that five hundred had been killed. England has made me detest Christianity, born in the amphitheatre, which it didn't leave without acquiring a taste for blood, and the newspapers are filled with scorn of Kruger because he reads the Bible. Think of it, A.E., because he reads his Bible. But don't think of it, my dear Moore. It would be better not, for when I do, life seems too shameful to be endured. The bishops of York and Canterbury praying to Jesus or to his father, which, probably to his father, but go on with your story. What story? The message that you received didn't come round to you by way of Judea. No, indeed, the gods that inspired me are among our native divinities. Angus seems to be kind and compassionate, and so far as I know, his clergy never ordered that anyone should be burnt at the stake for holding that 
It was not the kisses but the songs of the birds circling about his forehead that created love, all the same the druids. No one may speak ill of the druids in A.E.'s presence, and he told me that he did not know of any mention on Irish legends of human sacrifices, and if there had been, the Christian revisers of the legends would not have failed to mention them. You love the druids, I said. Uh, You love the druids, I said, looking into his calm and earnest face. When you were earning 50 pounds a year in Pim's shop, you used to go to Brayhead and address a wandering, wandering crowd, standing on a bit of broken wall, all your hair flowing in the wind. You cried out to them to return to the kind, compassionate gods that never ordered burnings in the marketplace, and I don't see why, A.E., we should not go forth together and preach the Danan divinities north, south, east and west. You shall be Paul. Barnabas quarrelled with Paul. I'll be Luke and take down your words. It would be your own thoughts, my dear Moore, that you would be reporting, not mine. And though Ireland stands in need of a new religion and a new language, one is no good without the other. We fell to talking of the Irish language. I maintain that it would be necessary to revive it, a.e. thinking that the Anglo-Irish idiom would be sufficient for literature until the thought emerged that perhaps it might have been Diamud that bade me to Ireland. I'd like to see the cromlechs under which the lovers slept, but I don't know where to find them. A.E. answered that at Whitsuntide he would have three or four days holiday and proposed to visit the sacred places with me. We'll seek the ancient divinities of the Gael together. A.E. pulled out his watch and said he must be going, and we strolled across the greensward to the wicket. The ash will be in leaf the day we start. I hope, A.E., that nothing will happen to prevent us, and I jumped out of bed every morning to see if the promise were for a fine or wet day. I had arrived in Ireland in March. It was raining then, but the weather had taken a turn in the middle of April. The 15th was the first fine day, and ever since, the days had played in the, da- in the garden like children. Shadows of apple trees and lilac bushes moving over the sweet grass with skies of ash and blue. Overhead fading into a dim, creamy pink in the south and east. The hawthorns were in full leaf and among the little metallic leaves, white and pink stars had just begun to appear and the scent of these floated after us. For no sinister accident had happened. A.E. called for me as he had promised, and we went away together on bicycles, myself on a new machine bought for the occasion, A.E. on an old one that he had ridden all over Ireland from village to village, establishing cooperative creameries and banks. And side by side we rode together through the early streets to Amiens Street Station, where we took second-class tickets to Drogheda, an hour's journey from Dublin. At Drogheda we jumped on our bicycles again, two tramps we were that day, enjoying the wide world, and so intoxicating was the sunlight that it was with difficulty I kept myself from calling to A.E. that I felt certain the gods would answer us. I would have done this if a river had not been passing by, and such a pretty river, a brook rather than a river. A.E., A.E., look and admire it. Let's stop. Let's stop there as they admire a river. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.